Well, today is Palm Sunday. This is the day when Christians all over the world mark the beginning of Holy Week by remembering the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem as he embarked on the week that was going to lead ultimately to his crucifixion uh, and his death. On the first Palm Sunday, the crowds cheered for Jesus as he entered Jerusalem. But by Friday, those very same crowds, the very same ones, were crying out for him to be crucified. An amazing turn of events. One of the resources that we mentioned that we have available uh, is that foldout that I showed you. And in that, it has a map, it has the timeline of Holy Week, some other things. But the timeline shows what a busy week Jesus had uh, from the triumphal entry until his crucifixion. And uh, I, I want to share a little of the, how Jesus' week went during Holy Week. On Monday, following the triumphal entry, he cleared the temple of the money changers. And so if you've read that story before and you've thought, not, not really thought about when that happened, uh, it happened just four days before he was going to be uh, crucified. And so on Monday of that week, he, he cleared out the temple from the money changers. On Tuesday, uh, he evaded traps that had been set by the religious leaders, and he went out to the Mount of Olives and uh, taught in parables. Uh, on the fold-out timeline that we gave you, it says that when Wednesday was a day of rest and not really mentioned in the Gospels. Others disagree with that uh, and believe that on Wednesday, Jesus taught in the temple. Uh, no doubt the Sanhedrin continued to plot against Jesus on Wednesday, and Passover preparations would have been being made uh, on Wednesday. I'm pretty confident the publishers of the fold-out uh, would say those things probably happened. They just aren't persuaded that they're specifically mentioned uh, in the Gospels for that particular day. Uh, on Thursday was the day of Passover, and Thursday was when the Last Supper took place. And the, the dialogue that happened between Jesus and his disciples during the Last Supper and then very late on Thursday is when Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And it was probably shortly after midnight, so officially Friday morning, uh, that Jesus was betrayed by Judas and arrested. And then there is a flurry of activity that takes place during the night uh, as Jesus goes before both religious and Roman officials he endured multiple sham trials within a very short period of time. And so from just after midnight being arrested, he eventually was crucified probably somewhere around 9 a.m. on Friday morning and then died around 3 p.m. on Friday afternoon. He was buried on Friday evening and then he rose on Sunday morning. And that's what we're going to celebrate next week, the greatest day in the history of planet Earth, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Amen. Now today I did not feel to focus the message on Palm Sunday, uh, but instead the message today is mostly centered in the 26th chapter of Matthew. We're going to look at several places there. It's, it's actually going to be a long and winding sermon, so settle in. 
So just, just warning you. We're, we're going to look at part of the conversation that occurred during the Last Supper, specifically between Jesus and Peter. We're going to read about Jesus' betrayal and arrest, and we're again going to note interactions between Jesus and Peter. And then we're going to read about Peter's denial of Christ. All that's in Matthew 26, and all of that occurred from late Thursday night into Friday of Holy Week. And then we're going to end our time together by looking at the first interaction between Jesus and Peter after Peter had denied the Lord and after Jesus had died and rose again. And so that will be in John chapter 21. I've titled the message, Jesus, Peter, and the Cost of Following Jesus. But before we get to Matthew 26, we're going to start in a minute in Matthew 16. And so it really is true. We have a lot of ground to cover today. So if you want to go ahead and turn to Matthew 16, we'll look there in just a minute or two. Have you ever been on the receiving end of a really odd sales pitch or ever seen a really odd marketing strategy? Any of you ever experienced anything like that? Maybe at a timeshare or something, you know, just, just an odd sales pitch. Years ago, when Michelle and I were first married, at least early in our marriage, we were approached by someone in the church we were at at that time, and they wanted to recruit us into their multi-level marketing company. And uh, we knew which multi-level marketing company it was, and, and uh, we were not the least bit interested. Uh, but this man and his wife were extremely persistent. We were very young, and so we were not very good at saying no and sticking with it. And so eventually, he persuaded us to go out and to eat with he and his wife and to hear the marketing pitch. And so we went to Chi-Chi's, for those of you who remember Chi-Chi's. And this man embarked upon his presentation telling us how much money we could make, how rich we could become, and how easy our lives would be. And we wanted easy lives. I'm telling you, we, we wanted easy lives. And we've been a colossal failure at easy lives, but that's what we wanted. And, and so he was telling us about this and, and that we could have all of these things if we would just join his mark, multi-level marketing company. Now, there were many problems with this man's sales pitch, but here was one of the, the worst, the most jarring. While he was telling us how rich we could become if we'd just do what he had done and join this company, here's what he ordered at Chi-Chi's for both he and his wife. The free chips and salsa, the free water, and when they brought it out, he produced his own tea bags to make his own tea, and then asked the waiter to bring lots of lemons. Now, lest you think that's all the man ordered, I do want to tell the story accurately. He did order and pay for a 99-cent side of queso dip. I was embarrassed to even be sitting with him. His entire order was 99 cents 
plus tax. I did not see how he tipped. <laughs> but I'm guessing 10 cents, 20 cents. So total order, probably $1.05, something like that, while eating massive amounts <laughs> of free chips and salsa and demanding that the water keep flowing and the lemons keep coming so he could keep making his own tea. Again, I was embarrassed. And more than that, I was totally convinced that this man had not gotten rich <laughs> with this business opportunity. In fact, I was somewhat convinced he did not have much more on him than the dollar five it took to pay for the queso dip. That is, I believe, the oddest, most ineffective sales pitch I have ever seen. You are probably not surprised. We did not sign up <laughs> for that opportunity. We begin today in Matthew 16, where Jesus is inviting people to follow him, and he's letting them know what's going to be involved with following him. It's the first interaction of about five interactions between Jesus and Peter that we're looking at today. And here's the truth. If Jesus would have utilized a marketing department, if he would have hired a sales consultant to help craft his message to his potential followers, they would never have endorsed the approach that Jesus took in Matthew chapter 16. He actually employs a very odd sales pitch, if we're going to be perfectly honest about it. Here's what we read in Matthew 16, verses 21 through 27, and I'm reading so much scripture today, we're not going to read it all together, but let's read this part uh, together. Here we go. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. From then, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet for forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. So Jesus is letting his disciples know what is soon to happen to him, that he's going to suffer, he's going to die, but that he will be raised to life on the third day. And Peter doesn't like this. He objects and in fact, our text says that he rebuked Jesus. Can you imagine? He rebuked Jesus. And so Jesus rebukes him right back. And he says some very strong words to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. 
You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God. You are only concerned with human concerns. Now, in addressing Peter this way, I I don't think Jesus was suggesting that Peter was demon-possessed or controlled by Satan or anything like that. He was simply meaning that the words that Peter was speaking were words that you would expect to come from Satan. Like, like these are not words a follower of Jesus should be saying. So, I brought us to this passage for a very specific purpose, and that is because this passage is where Jesus shares his odd sales pitch. It it, it is where Jesus tells those who were gathered that day considering following him, it's where he, he tells them, and by extension tells us, what it means to follow him. And, and, and here's what it means. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. They must take up their cross. They must follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But if you'll lose your life for me, you will find it. Now, you don't have to know much about people to know that this is not like what the marketing strategist would tell you to do. If you're going to be on my team, here's what I need from you. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. We, we think that just means, hey, be willing to carry a little burden, but it, but it means a lot more than that. And follow. William MacDonald helps us understand what Jesus is asking. Here's what he writes. To deny self is not the same as self-denial. It means to yield to God's control so completely that self has no rights whatsoever. I, I mean, who, who, who's telling their employees that? And he also helps us understand what it means to take up our cross. To take up the cross means the willingness to endure shame and suffering to die, to sin, self, and the world, and perhaps to endure martyrdom for Christ's sake, to literally, physically have to die for Jesus. And then McDonald goes on and says this of following Jesus. It means to live as he lived with all that involves of humility, poverty, compassion, Love, grace, and every other godly virtue. German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer summarized what it means to follow Jesus this way. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. The marketing department, the sales consultant would not have advised Jesus to lead with this. But Jesus doesn't want to mislead anybody. He he doesn't tell people who are considering following him that everything will always go well with them if they will follow. He doesn't do that. He lets people know, he lets us know right up front that following him is going to be very costly. And note that Jesus explained what it meant to follow him, and we see that Peter was there, 
And Peter heard what it meant to follow Jesus. If he hadn't heard it before, he heard it now, he heard it clearly, he even got rebuked because he objected to it. And so no doubt this rebuke drove deep into Peter's heart and mind what it meant to follow Jesus. Now I want to go to our next passage, the next scene, if you will, that we're going to look at, Matthew 26, verses 31 through 35. It will be on the screen, but I'm just going to read it. Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered him, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same thing. The time that Jesus told them about in Matthew 16 and at other times has now arrived. And Jesus informs his disciples that what he told them is about to happen really is going to happen. They're all, and they're all going to fall away. They're all going to desert him when it does happen. Peter objected. He boldly proclaimed that even if everyone else fell away, even if everyone else deserted Jesus, he never would. And after Peter's bold declaration, Jesus turns his attention from the group and he focuses on Peter. Focuses on Peter. Remember, he focused on Peter when he said what it would cost to follow and now he's focusing on Peter again. And he lets Peter know that before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Peter doubles down. No, I won't. I will die for you if I have to. I will never disown you. Jesus says Peter will deny him. Peter vows to die for him. There is very little doubt in my mind that as Jesus told them what was about to happen to him, that Peter remembered that Jesus had explained the cost of following him meant that you might have to not only deny yourself, but you might have to take up your cross. He knew that the cross was a symbol of death, and he knew that the cost of following Jesus might require not just giving up his rights, but it might require the willingness to actually die, physically die for Jesus. And Peter pledged to pay that price if it was necessary. Now, most of us know how this story unfolds. And we know that Peter did not keep that promise. He said he was willing to die for Jesus, but he wasn't really. And so we'll see in a few minutes that Peter and the rest of the disciples, just like Jesus said they would, they all deserted him. They all abandoned him in his hour of greatest need. Now, I believe that Peter was absolutely sincere when he vowed to die for Jesus. He meant it. But here's the thing. Peter did not know his own heart as well as Jesus knew his heart. 
And Jesus knew that when the pressure mounted, Peter was going to fold. Peter was going to crumble. So in our first passage, our first scene, Peter heard the cost of following Jesus. In our second passage, our second scene, he pledged to pay the cost of following Jesus. He pledged to die for Jesus, but Jesus knew he wouldn't keep that promise. Now let's look at Matthew 26, 47 through 56. This passage comes after the Last Supper. It comes after the dialogue that we just read between Peter and Jesus. It comes in the Garden of Gethsemane after Jesus has prayed and after he has committed himself to the will of God. It is the account of the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus that initiated a quick succession of sham trials that would lead to his crucifixion not many hours later. And here's what we find in these verses. While he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elder, elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them, the one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I can't call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have to come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. The Gospel of John tells us that it was Simon Peter who cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest, and that that servant's name was Malchus. We know from the Gospel of Luke that Jesus healed Malchus' ear after Peter cut it off. And what a picture of grace and love that is. Think of that. Healing a man who has come out to arrest you, subject you to a sham trial that's going to lead to your crucifixion. Two quick observations. First, Jesus rebukes Peter for his action. Put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Second, Jesus reminds Peter that if he wants to get free from those who are arresting him, he does not need Peter's help. Do you think I can't call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. And really, Jesus was just being modest and even saying that. Because let's face it, he himself has the authority of life and death. All he had to do is speak the word, and they don't get their next breath. 
But for our purposes today, here are the things that I want to draw special attention to from this interaction. First of all, I want us to understand that Peter was not trying to cut off an ear. He was trying to strike a lethal blow. Peter was trying to kill Malchus. William MacDonald humorously notes that Peter's aim was as poor as his judgment must be attributed to divine providence. But make no mistake, he wasn't trying to slice off an ear. He was trying to kill. And then note the end of verse 56. Then all the disciples deserted Jesus and fled. I'm not going to take the time to read it today, but it's referenced in your outline. Matthew 26, 69 through 74 records Peter doing exactly what Jesus said he would do and denying that he even knew Jesus and doing it three times before the rooster crowed. Make no mistake, he denied knowing Jesus because he was scared. He was scared. He had heard that following Jesus required taking up a cross. He had pledged to die for Jesus. But when the pressure mounted and danger visited, what was revealed about Peter is that he wasn't really willing to die for Jesus. He was willing to kill for Jesus. But he wasn't willing to die for him. We're going to revisit that thought here in a few minutes because sadly, I am afraid there are a lot of Christians that are more willing to kill for Jesus than they are to die for Jesus. And he has not asked that of us and he does not want that from us. So follow the progression of the story. Je uh, Peter heard what it cost to follow Jesus. He pledged his willingness to pay the cost of following Jesus, but then the pressure mounted. He wasn't actually willing to pay the cost. But just because Peter wouldn't pay the cost did not mean the cost of following Jesus had changed. And so if he's going to follow Jesus, he's going to have to come to the place where he's willing to deny himself and take up his cross. And so, Jesus dies. He pays the penalty for every man, woman, boy, and girl that has ever been born on planet earth. And because he had fully paid the debt of sin, death could no longer hold him. And he rose to life again. And we celebrate that this coming Sunday. But for today, I want us to make one more stop in the Scriptures. John 21, 18 through 22, Jesus has risen from the grave. He's appeared to Mary. He's appeared to a group of the disciples. He's appeared to doubting Thomas. And at the beginning of John 21, Jesus appears where some of the disciples are out fishing. But they're not catching anything. And Jesus appears and he calls out to them from the shore and he says... Cast your nets on the other side of the boat. And they do. And 
and they catch a large number of fish. Evidently, it was not clear to everybody that it was Jesus who had told them to do this because John 21 tells us that John told Peter, hey, that's Jesus on the shore. And Peter immediately jumped out into the water and started swimming for the shore. And then John 21, 15 through 25 tell us, most of your Bibles will caption it, Jesus reinstates Peter or something to that effect. And so this section of John 21 tells us of of Jesus forgiving Peter and reinstating him to leadership in his church, just not very long at all after having denied him three times. And so from that section, I just want us to look at verses 18 through 22. And here's what Jesus says to Peter, who pledged to die but then was not willing to die. Here's what he says to him, very truly I tell you, When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. And then John lets us know what this means. He says, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And church tradition tells us that Peter was crucified upside down because he did not consider himself to be crucified and uh, worthy to be crucified in the same manner that Jesus had been crucified. And so after foretelling Peter that you are going to die a martyr's death, that is the cost of following me. And he says, follow me. Peter turned Saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John. And, you know, this is the, this is the John who had leaned back against Jesus and, and, and you know, uh, at, the, at the supper and said, Lord, who's going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? What about him? And Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Think of this. It's really sort of a funny scene. So Peter has just been told, you're going to die a martyr's death. And he looks over at his friend John. And he says, what about him? Lord, have you considered John? I mean, there are multiple people who could fill this role. John? John comes to mind. And Jesus, if I want him to remain alive until I return, that is not your business. I've just told you what I want from you. You're going to have to die for me. Follow. Follow me. Jesus forgave Peter for his faithlessness. He restored him and reinstated him, but then he reminds him. The deal hasn't changed. The cost is the same as I've always told you. You must be willing to pay the cost of following me. Peter had to be willing 
to do what he had not been willing to do in the Garden of Gethsemane. He had to be willing to do what he had not been willing to do when he was around the fire and confronted about knowing Jesus. He had to finally come to the place where he was willing to accept the cost of following Jesus. Deny yourself. Relinquish all rights. Relinquish all rights. Take up your cross. Be willing to figuratively die, but if necessary, be willing to literally, physically die. Follow me. When Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. And friends, in 2022, this is still the cost of following Jesus. The willingness to endure shame and suffering. The willingness to die to sin and self and the world. And even the willingness to endure martyrdom. As, as outside of the possibility as that seems for us, it is not outside of the possibility for many believers throughout the world today. To yield so completely to God and His control that we relinquish all of our rights and we embrace whatever the will of God requires. Now, I'm going to go quickly. I, I know we're going a little bit longer than we've gotten used to. Uh, this used to be a normal time, by the, by, by the way, but we, we've gotten used to a little shorter services. Uh, but four quick applications that I want to share from these interactions between Jesus and Peter. Here's the first one. It is absolutely true that salvation is a free gift that we receive by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But following Jesus is costly. It's costly. And believers in 2022, I'm afraid, are too often trying to follow Jesus in a cost-free way. You see, following Jesus means things like preferring others over ourselves. It means sacrificing for the sake of the gospel. It means sacrificing time. It means sacrificing convenience. It means sacrificing preferences. Following Jesus mean, means doing things God calls you to do even when you'd rather not do them. Too often I think evangelicals are guilty of soft-peddling what it means to become a Christian and follow Jesus. We sometimes leave the impression that you can pray a prayer and then go live life however you want. Well, it'd be better for you not to be a selfish jerk the rest of your life, but, but if that's what you choose, I mean, you know, you said the prayer, so okay. We excuse ourselves from even low-level commitments. We act like minor sacrifices are a heavy burden too much for us to endure for the cause of Christ. We reverse the golden rule, and instead of doing to others what we'd like for them to do to us, we do to others what they've done to us. Following Jesus always comes with a call to deny self, to give up rights, and to take up a cross. If your version, if my version of Christianity doesn't have any evidence of giving up rights and taking up a cross then we've probably just slapped a label on ourselves but not actually said yes to following Jesus because following Jesus requires denying self and taking up a cross. 
And here's what we are tempted to think. We think that if we do this, that if we do what Jesus says, if we deny ourselves, that we're going to miss out, that we're going to lose out. But Jesus has promised this, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The New Living Translation says, if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. Following Jesus, as costly as it is, is the only way, friends, that we ever have the life that is really, truly life. It's the only way we find it. Here's the second application, and this comes from a pastor in Texas by the name of Josh Howerton. He writes, there is a counterfeit type of faithfulness that's willing to kill for Christ, but not willing to die for him. In the case of Peter, he was physically trying to kill Malchus. Most Christians today are not trying to physically kill people. But I am afraid that way too many Christians only want to fight for Jesus. But they're not willing to die for Jesus. And that doesn't mean there's never a time to fight. But too often the fights that we take on in the name of Jesus are fights that he never asks of us and that he does not want from us. Lots of believers are ready to fight when what Jesus says he needs, in fact, what he requires is believers who are willing to take up their cross and die. You know, we have a long history of fighting the world, and it's my view that some of those fights are necessary. Don't hear me say something I'm not saying today. I I think there are some fights that are worth having. I mean, we have to live here too. And so there, there are some fights I think that are worth having, but a lot of them are not. They're just not. And we fight about a lot of those things. But here's where I'm increasingly concerned, and that is that it seems more and more we're not even satisfied with just fighting with the world over things Jesus never asked us to fight about, but we're fighting with each other over things Jesus doesn't want us fighting about. And if I can just be delicate, a lot of it is absolute nonsense. Too many believers have lost the ability to distinguish between what's important and worth fighting for. Things like the deity of Jesus, things like salvation in Christ alone, things like the gospel, and now they want to fight with any believer who disagrees with them about anything, no matter how small it is. Over secondary issues and truly debatable matters, they'll demonize each other, accuse each other of being compromisers and unbiblical and heretical. Again, over things that are legitimately debatable and often quite insignificant. There's a major evangelical denomination that if you happen to be one of the misguided people like I am that spends a little bit of time on Twitter, there's like a Twitter war going on between members of this really major evangelical denomination, and it's sad Because literally everybody fighting each other are Bible-believing, Christ-honoring Christians. 
But some of them have totally lost the ability to distinguish between essentials and non-essentials. And so they demonize other believers who are genuine followers of Jesus, their brothers and sisters in Christ. It's awful. I tend to be a fighter myself. I'm trying more and more to allow the Holy Spirit to restrain me. I'm realizing I don't have to respond to every minor error I think I discern in someone's 140-character message on Twitter. And the vitriol that many believers go public with toward, toward nationally known pastors and church leaders over every slight misstatement or mildly concerning comment, it is absolutely deplorable. If your evangelism strategy is throwing other Christians under the bus over minor things, you're doing it wrong. With both the world out there and our brothers and sisters in here and our brothers and sisters around the world, let's be people who actually do what Christ asks of us. Let's deny ourselves. Let's take up our cross. Let's stop being people who are so willing to kill for Jesus and become people who are willing to die for Jesus. Here's the third application. We have to grow in emulating Christ who loved people who hated him and showed kindness to people who were seeking to kill him. We just have to. Now this application is mainly about our posture toward the world. Because if we find in our midst believers who are hating on each other and believers who are trying to harm each other, we're, we're not allowed to just overlook that. Christian discipleship and accountability requires that we address that. We don't leave other believers to continue hating and harming each other. But in our posture toward the world, we, we have to do better and not trying to correct everything and everyone that hates on us, but just love them. Be kind to those who mistreat us. This is difficult. You're not going to get any condemnation from me if you're struggling with this. It is hard. But we have to follow Jesus. We have to emulate Christ. We have to be willing to pay this cost. And here's why it's so important that we pay the cost, and it's the fourth application. We are reminded that things that don't make sense to us, things like denying ourselves, taking up our cross, dying instead of fighting, being nice to people who mistreat us, loving people who hate us, doing to others what we wish they'd do to us instead of the other way around. These things that don't make much sense to us are exactly the way that victories are won for the kingdom of God. It is. You see, in Christ's kingdom, victories are not won through carnal means. They're not. We fight differently. I mean, think of this. Death looks like defeat. When Jesus cries out, it is finished and breathes his last breath. But you know that in death, Christ was actually the victor. Death was victory. It wasn't defeat. 
When persecution scattered Christians throughout the Roman Empire, what looked like a negative thing, God used to spread the good news throughout the known world. What does the Bible tell us? When we're weak, then we're strong. Doesn't make any sense. We don't win by carnal means. When we're weak, we're strong. What do we know? When we die, we have eternal life. In Christ's kingdom, victories aren't won by carnal means. To resort to worldly tactics and spiritual warfare is to invite disaster. William MacDonald writes, let the enemies of the kingdom use the sword. And I'll add the hateful rhetoric, the character assassinations. They will eventually meet defeat. Let the soldier of Christ resort to prayer, the word of God, and the power of the spirit-filled life. Like Peter eventually did. Let's be people who embrace the cost of following Jesus. Let's not be people who practice a counterfeit faith that's willing to kill for Christ but not willing to die for him. Let's count the cost. Let's deny ourselves. Let's take up our cross. Let's follow Jesus like he requires. And so I have this question for you as we go into a time of prayer. What is God asking of you? What is God requiring of you? What cost is God asking you to pay to follow him? that you have not been willing to pay. My hope is that today you will commit to say yes to whatever that cost is that God is asking of you. Let's stand.